Yeah. Grand Unified Theory. Rational Response Squad's newest member. My name is Grade Square. And I'ma always give it to you straight. Check it. Yo, yo, yo. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the podcast. I've got with me this week, Andrew Burleson. Hey, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Chuck. Thanks. Dude, where are you at right now? Are you in Austin? I am in Austin. Yeah. Nice. Nice. I, I did see yesterday something that Raleigh, which is where you actually live right now, uh, was voted like the number two most something livable city or city on the rise or something like that. So uh, you kind of got the bouncing back and forth between Austin and Raleigh, the best of both from a, from a planning geek standpoint, the best of both cities, huh? Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, here's what I wanted to, we're going to talk today about rational responses, but before we do that, uh, I wanted to kind of hit you cold on this because I, I want you to describe it in your way. Uh, you were involved in a little airline incident oh. <laughs> in the last couple of weeks and you and I haven't had a chance to talk, although we emailed about it, but I just want, I, I want to, I want your description of what happened and what went down. Uh, cause you know, you and I both fly a lot and this is something I've not experienced, but now you've had the uh, aborted takeoff or, you know, the return to the airport. So tell us what happened. Okay. Well, um, all right. So I was, uh, on my way out to San Francisco from Raleigh and, um, so get on the plane, everything's normal. Um, and this was a, this flight we needed to, uh, connect in Chicago. So this is a Chicago bound plane. Um, we're taking off and as you know, about the time that the plane is, has tipped back and is, you know, the wheels are just coming off, you know, just coming off the ground. There's this sudden, very loud, you know, banging kind of popping noise. And it just, you know, I mean like very, very loud. So, so we're <laughs> tipped back at about a 45 degree angle and everyone here is pow, 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 you know, and which, that goes which on doesn't for, res- which doesn't give you a lot of confidence. No. And I mean, when I say loud, I mean, it was very loud. It was like, it was not, you know, I mean, it, it was a very, very loud noise. Like you're consider that you're in a jet that's taking off, which is already a very loud place to be. And this was like loud enough that you were no longer hearing the engines or any of the conversation or wow. anything. Well, I mean, of course, conversation all immediately stopped. Everyone in the entire plane immediately is like, oh, crap. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, yeah, so that was a little weird. But then then the noise stopped. I should say to, like, clarify, I was on the front row of the plane. I happened to have uh, early boarding for that particular flight, and so I was on the front row. So the the noise stops, and everybody looks around, and we're like, hmm, um, okay, well, let's see. It doesn't feel like a roller coaster. Things have quieted down now. Like after this very loud, loud noise, now the plane seems extremely quiet. And of course, nobody's talking at first. But then everybody starts sort of looking around and talking to their neighbor and sort of speculating, you know, well, what just happened? So because the plane is like not, you know, not crashing to the ground, I was initially like, well, I guess it, I guess we're probably okay. But, um, you know, after a few minutes, we we noticed that, you know, the flight attendants are, you know, sort of racing back up and down the aisles of the plane and they keep going back and looking out the window. And there's a lot more commotion in the back of the plane uh, than there was up in the front. And so, um, you know, it it seems a little fishy. Something's clearly, you know, not quite right. So um, we uh, <laughs> I don't know, five minutes have gone by maybe. Okay. And it's obvious that we're not really climbing anymore. Um, oh, the plane, we are, the plane had stopped climbing at this point. Yeah. The plane had stopped climbing. We, we, I mean, we weren't, we didn't crash. We weren't crash. I mean, I'm here. Right. So we, we didn't crash, Right. but, uh, but we had stopped climbing. And so at this point it's like, okay, well something is wrong. 
we're not climbing. It doesn't look like we're going to Chicago. And then the flight attendants come over the speaker and they say this. They say, okay, everybody, um, the pilots are doing uh, you know, the stuff that they have to do as pilots. And uh, we're sorry there hasn't been any news yet, but um, you know, I, I know they're going to give us an update real soon. <laughs> and at that point, at that point, everyone on the so like a minute before this happens, the uh-huh. girl who's sitting next to me is like really freaking out, and she's like, "Do you think we're gonna be okay? Are you nervous?" And I was like, "No, I'm, I'm not very nervous. I've been on planes that had weird noises and stuff before, and it was okay. And like the crew doesn't look too scared. Like as long as the crew doesn't seem freaked out, I'm okay." And then they come and they announce that, and she looks at me. And she goes, "Are you nervous now?" I said, "Yes, <laughs> very nervous now." Uh, the pilots are doing the things that pilots need to do like yeah not crash the plane great so then then a minute later uh they come on and, and the pilots actually say okay guys so here's the deal we lost our left side engine and it looks like we hit a bunch of birds and we lost the engine on the left side of the plane but don't worry uh, it is uh, the, these planes are designed to be able to fly in one engine. This is a uh, flying on one engine is something we practice and train for all the time. Uh, we are totally uh, equipped for this scenario, and uh, we're just going to turn back around and uh, uh, go back and land in Raleigh. And uh, so you know, but but just in case. Uh, we're going to have the, uh, in case of any, anything going wrong, we're going to have the crew go, go back through our emergency procedures with you. Um, and they get us all prepared since this would qualify as an emergency landing, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, you know, so he says that, and then the flight attendants like scramble, they all pull out these checklists and everything. And and now you're guy, paying attention <laughs> right now. So they go back through the same security stuff they normally do, but everyone this time, they're like, you know, they say, you know, okay, everybody grab that safety card in the seat. And everyone like dives for their safety card. Right. So, which like, you know, you've surely, you're supposed to have read this a hundred times by now, but you know, so they're like, okay. And the guy who's in the very front of the plane, uh, oh man, he was, he, he, he did a great job trying his best to look composed, but but the steward the steward in the front of the plane was uh, uh, a, a he little, was not a little rattled. Yeah, he was not very comfortable with this. So he's like got his big he's his big green car, uh, you know like legal size printout. Yeah, it's like what to do in the event of, and you know he's like scanning down this <laughs> list and you know, landing on one engine. Okay. So he's so like I said, I'm on the front row, which qualifies as an exit row, I guess. And um, so, you know, he's like, he's like, okay, um, all right, uh, you guys are are my exit row people, and uh, okay, so um, you're gonna be the A's. These are the people in the aisles. So that was me. Uh, and you're gonna be the B's, and then you're gonna be the C's. That's the window seats on yeah. either either side. Yeah. And you each have a job, and he runs us through our jobs. And so my job was, if we have to evacuate the plane that I have to go run and open one of the doors. And he stressed emphatically since that is, since that side, the left side of the plane is what uh, the engine blew up. We're not going to go out that side of the plane. So don't let anybody open this door, only open this door. And here's how you open it. And the slide will automatically come out. And, you know, so if we have to, we have to evacuate, that's how you do it. And if anything happens to any of the crew, you know, your job is to make sure that the crew gets uh, pushed down the slide if anybody's incapacitated. And then so he's like sort of divvied up the people <laughs> like your your job is to throw open the door. Your job is to like go down the slide and catch people at the bottom. And your job is to push people down the slide if they can't do it on their own. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're like, so you don't have to you don't have to, you know, heave people out the door. That's not your now job. My job was to get the door open and make sure nobody opened the wrong door. Okay. So. Oh, you can handle so, that. Yeah, I guess. Well, I didn't end up having to. The, the 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 end of the story is less dramatic. The after all that, we get ready and we're all you know we're nervous. And I mean, I'm I'm saying a few prayers and just thinking about you know what crossed my mind is. On the one hand, I read a, I happened to read a magazine article a few years ago that talked about a Boeing seven thirty seven flying in Canada that lost both engines because they ran out of fuel. They had some sort of miscalculation of wow. like they they were given 
they were given the amount of fuel for a flight from Vancouver to like Calgary, yeah. but they were actually flying to Toronto or something like that. So oh. they did, just didn't have enough gas. Oops. And like at the time, that particular model had a percentage indicator on the fuel uh, in the, that the pilots could see, but not a number of gallons indicator or something like that, or not a number of liters, whatever they measure jet fuel in. Sure. So the pilots saw 100% based on what was or something like that. I don't remember all the yeah, yeah. story. The point is the planes ran out of gas and the, and nobody realized they didn't have enough fuel until they were like basically already dead in the air. Right. And they were able to glide that plane something like a couple hundred miles from their cruising altitude uh, down to some abandoned Air Force base in Canada where they were able to land and, and like everyone was fine. Like it was a perfect landing. Sure. Um, you wouldn't even know the difference until you looked out the window and saw you weren't where you were going. Yeah. I would imagine that because they were gliding, they were probably descending a lot more quickly than they normally would. But yeah, in general it was like, other than it being strangely quiet and there being no power on right. the plane and probably everybody right. being afraid for their life, <laughs> Right. you know, well, like it, they were able to, it always amazed me. Yeah, it always amazed me that the space shuttles, you know, the space shuttle had no power on the way down. It just was a big right. glider coming down. Yeah. So I, I pretty much, I kind of knew like, okay, you know, I mean, we, we still have one engine and these things are actually able to fly with, are able to, theoretically able to land with no engines if the, you know, conditions are right. So... You know, like, I, you know, but I, I, I was nervous and I mean, I thought to myself, you know, do I want to try and get out my phone and try to, because we're, we're pretty low, we're pretty low altitude. I probably would have still had a cell signal. So I'm like, okay, do I want to get out my phone and try and text my wife something, you know, Hey honey, uh, just in case, but you know, I, I had already, I had already called her before the flight and said, I love you. Talk to you later. Like I'll call you when I get there or whatever. I mean, that, I had already, I felt like. I thought about it and I was like, you know, I've already said everything there is to say. If I call her now uh, and then yeah, that's not going to, you know, it's not going to work. So, so for the next half hour of her life, she's going to be like in mortal terror <laughs> until I'm able to give her some kind of update. And also I figured, you know, I don't want to be the guy who, when the plane is already in an emergency situation, right. Pulls flaps, out his phone and, the rule on getting out your phone. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, so anyway, <laughs> so yeah, so we so we come in like we're gonna land, and the crew. This was like the most stressful part of the whole thing is the crew says, "Okay, it's an emergency landing, so everyone needs to tuck down. You gotta like uh, hunker down and put your hands over your head." Joking me? And serious? They, yeah, seriously. And they, you know, because they get in the tucking sort of tucked position so that in case anything, you know, right? In case it's a hard landing, you know. So yeah, everybody's got their tray tables triple check to make sure those are locked your seats all the way up in the very most locked position it can be and then you're tucked down and your your arms over your head and the crew shouts for the entire probably like two minutes of the final approach and landing head down stay down head down stay down head down and so that was actually the little mantra of like yeah you know we're about to crash yeah. that was more traumatic <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, that was the most traumatizing thing. But afterwards, everybody was like, okay, so so then we land. And actually, the landing was pretty much normal. Like, it was a remarkably smooth landing. Yeah. Um, not bumpy at all. I guess because we were already coming in pretty slow and they had cleared, you know. Sure. There's no hurry. When you're when you're in an emergency landing situation, they've cleared the whole airport for you. Right. So I think the, the pilot, like, you know, really took it in extra slow with no, you know. Yeah. You know, yeah. I would imagine when they're normally landing, it's like, hey, you know, chop, chop, let's get this done. Right. So right. this silky smooth landing. And then the, the, the final thing that was weird is everyone. So everyone breaks out into applause and it's like, you know, oh, thank God we're on the ground. And then like every fire truck in the county starts screaming its way down the runway towards our plane <laughs> uh, to like make sure that, you know, we're not leaking jet fuel and about to blow up or something. Right. So right. they have the plane parked there for a while and the fire department checks everything out and and it was okay. I mean, they were, the engine was messed up, but they had cut the fuel to it. And it looks like, you know, the fuel lines themselves weren't damaged or anything. So it wasn't leaking. So it was, it was okay. So I read the, the newspaper article and I, I love the visual image of like everybody high-fiving each other. And, uh, yeah. just like, <laughs> it was yeah it was kind of like that yeah when we got up to the when when uh we got up to he says you know okay you're my ace so come here and i'm gonna like explain in great detail how to operate the door yeah 
uh, and all the scenarios for what might happen. So he thinks, so we stand up and the girl who's on the other aisle stands up and she, she looks at me, she's like, she's like, Hey, I'm Nicole. Hey, good to meet you. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so beforehand you're just remain anonymous, but now that you're going to bear perish together, you might as well yeah. uh, introduce yeah, each we other. We might as well yeah. be friends with everyone around us in right. the aisle. So. <laughs> Uh, and then you know after afterwards it took a, it took an uh i don't know it took an hour or two to get everybody like fully off the plane yeah. and processed on the new flights and they gave everybody a big travel voucher so that was yeah. nice i mean did, did you get I out mean, in the tarmac then or did you did they wheel you up yeah they the... were able to pull it once the fire department had verified that there was no fuel leaking they yeah. let us just pull up to the gate and unload okay. so we actually weren't on the plane that much longer um once it got yeah, once it was down, the fire department probably looked us over for maybe like ten minutes. Yeah, and then we pulled right up to the gate, and everybody was able to just walk off. And then they had a whole team of people from Southwest who were kind of processing everybody and trying to help them see yeah. if they could get to where they needed to go yeah. as soon as possible, and so on and so forth. And the so, next and the next day, you got on a plane and. No, nope. I took the exact same flight 24 hours later. Yeah. And actually, the funny thing is the next day I sat next to a guy, which, by the way, the second time around, it went completely smooth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the second time around, I sat next to a guy who told me, you know what? I was scheduled for that flight yesterday. <laughs> uh, I, I stayed home. Like I decided to extend my trip an hour or I mean an extra day. I, I pushed my trip back 24 hours. I was like, OK, best decision of your life. Yeah, buddy. yeah. No kidding. <laughs> And then the, uh, one of the people, when we were getting off the plane, one of the things that we all got a big laugh out of is there's this one girl who was like, oh, well, I was actually scheduled for an earlier flight, but I took the, like that, that flight ended up being overbooked and they needed one person who would be willing to take the later flight. So I, I took the travel voucher, you know, an hour or two ago to take this flight instead of my original flight. And then we almost, you know, crashed and died. Right. So she said like the whole time, her story was the whole time that the whole ordeal is going on. (laughs) She's sitting there going like, why didn't I keep my flight? Why didn't I keep my flight? All this for a stupid voucher. Yeah. So she got. She made off like a bandit. She got the 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 overbook voucher and the crash landing voucher, so she yeah. fly free for a year. Wow! But wow. Well, dude, I'm I'm happy you're still with us. Yeah. <laughs> Jack, uh, me too. Oh man, that was a crazy. When you emailed me, and then just because basically you sent me like one line, like here's my flight today, and then uh, it was the newspaper article. I thought, oh my gosh. You know what I thought? I thought I'm going to have to do this whole darn uh, rational responses uh, thing by myself. And uh, I'm just not prepared to do that. Uh, Yeah. So, well, so let me set this up. Um, And you may have a different way of, of introing this, but here's, here's where I'm coming at this. I've been writing this blog since 2009 And I've been out doing curbside chats and talking to people. And one of the things that I always get is, okay, Chuck, uh, you've told us all the things that we're doing wrong. Uh, What are we supposed to be doing that, uh, you know, differently? Or I also get this week, I got one of these, Chuck, all you do is you tell us negative stuff that's not working. Where's the positive stuff that is working? Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of this is kind of centered around two, two things. The first is I, I, something that Jim Kunstler, I think, has just uh, you know perfectly captured, which is the the notion that we want solutions to the, our problems. That you know you have problem X, there should be solution Y. Uh, what is that solution? Let's do that. And, you know, as I think has been pointed out many, many times, oftentimes our, our solutions just simply create more problems. Uh, you know, our, our, our problem is the last solution. And so I've always kind of rejected the notion that there's a solution to this complex set of problems. But then there's this other vein that has been even more frustrating to me, uh, which is, you know, we do talk a lot about things that cities should be doing and things that we should be doing differently, but people are not hearing them as responses, as actions that they should take, largely because I I think they seem, uh, 
either too difficult to do or too outside of the realm of what they're doing today uh, to be something that they can really ponder. And so you and I talked about this and said, well, we need to just put them out there. We need to just come up with a list and start, you know, weekly writing about one or two of these rational responses that we've talked about in other places, but just highlight them and put them front and center and kind of, in a sense, force the conversation to be about these specific set of responses that we think are rational things we all should be doing. Is that a fair way to kind of start where we're at? Yeah, I think it is. And I think, um, I think the, the, the comment like, well, what should we be doing instead? And what you just said that people don't seem, we, we suggest things and people seem to often not notice that. I think that's actually a perfect place where we can dive into this conversation because I felt like that even happened on your very first post, (laughs) right? You know, you posted (laughs) cities basically need to just like stop everything, quit what they're doing. And, you know, we only had like one comment right. uh, I don't even, I don't remember what the comment was, but it was, you know, like, Hey, good post. It was some like, you know, not very, yeah. not very combative comment. And I'm sitting there looking at this, like, this is a radical, profound statement yeah. that Chuck is making. Why yeah. are people not like, you know, where are the, where are the critics to this? And I, you know, was sitting there thinking about it and I felt like, you know, it's exactly what you described. People here, cities should stop everything they're doing. And they go, uh, yeah, but we're not going okay, to. Okay, right. cool. All right. It's like, it's like, well, it's either one of two reactions, like either, either, okay, I don't really know what that means, maybe. Right. Although, I mean, I think you were, I think you, I felt like you explained it, but, you know, it's like either, either it's, well, I guess that sounds like a good idea. Stop doing the things that are hurting you. Okay. And these are the kinds of things that are hurting you. Okay. All right. Sure. We should stop doing those things. But somehow people just often, I think, don't. Like they don't bring it home. And it really comes down to what you talk about in your curbside chat always, which is um, everyone wants to know what can someone else change about what they're doing so that I don't have to change anything about what I'm doing and this problem can be solved. And the answer is like it doesn't work that way. It it won't work that way. Last summer I – went to the doctor and we had just a, it was a annual physical. Uh, my insurance policy requires that I go get a physical every year. Went in, the doctor said, everything is great, but you really should lose about 20 pounds. Uh, you know, and, and we started talking about it and, you know, essentially I said, well, you know, what, what, what would you recommend? He goes, well, you need to get your heart rate up three times a week. And you need, and literally I came back a year later having lost 20 pounds. And he said, you know, what did you do? And I said, well, I did what you told me to do. I, I started running more. Uh, I changed my diet. I gave up Mountain Dew. Uh, and I, I did some of these things and I lost 20 pounds. And he said, that, that's incredible. Nobody ever just does those basic things. They always want, you know, what's the pill I can take? Uh, what's the kind of easy program I can do? Uh, nobody wants to actually do the, the, the things that are the obvious things that we need to do. So I, I used in my first post that health analogy, like, okay, uh, you're, you're overweight. You need to lose 20 pounds. Uh, yes, there's the, you know, easy diet plan that you take this pill every day and it's supposed to make you better, but we all know that it doesn't. There's the cabbage diet, the like, okay, here's like the radical thing that we'll try to do over here while still maintaining our cheeseburger diet, you know, the rest of the day. And then there's the kind of, you know, hey, give up the stuff that's not good for you and add the stuff that is good for you. Somehow when we talk to cities about that, uh, that doesn't seem to be a very viable option often. Yeah, well, um, okay. Th- yeah, and I think for that reason, the health analogy is really a perfect analogy because not only is it not only is it very parallel, you know, as you're describing, but also um, it's something where there's a lot of, there are a lot of different responses that are happening, many of which are not rational and to varying degrees, this is more on the minds of, I think, regular people uh, than, you know, the nuances of municipal budgets would be. And so to varying degrees, everyone sort of understands some of the irrationality, maybe not all, but some of the irrationality that goes on in the health sector right now or in, in the topic of health. So, you know, I I posted a follow-up because I was kind of upset that people, there weren't enough angry 
you know, there weren't right. enough uh, angry out, outbursts in response to the, the first version of stop. So I posted a follow-up that was just, you know, like, okay, stop, you know, these specific things. So no new subdivisions, no new roads, you know, no new, uh, and uh, that list, I should actually pull it up so I don't look, just try to remember it off the top of my head, but um, that list got a lot more comments. Right. And I feel like. Yeah. All, all of a sudden we were reaching people, you, you know, uh, all of a sudden people were saying, well, okay. Uh, no, I I don't want to stop building new roads. Maybe we have a no right. net road, pro, you know, process. Chuck, come on, uh, but you know, no new roads. Are you guys serious? No new subdivisions. What do you mean? Uh, you went through and listed them. You know, no curb cuts. Yeah. So so here was my list: no yeah. new roads, no new subdivisions, no increase in curb cuts, uh, no new parking, no new uh, no new ordinances, and no new public debt. Um, <laughs> So, um, and I, and yeah, I think, and you know, that's just a start of the, of the right. list, but I, I think it was good to kind of crystallize what we were talking that's about. The, that's the appetizer. That's right. the sampler. That's the sampler platter. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> Those are just the, the really obvious things that most places are. Well, and the thing is there is no such thing. And, and this is why we haven't tried to produce this. There is no such thing as a list of these five things are happening in every city and they're the whole problem. And if all cities would just do these things, then it would be solved. There is nothing like that. Right. There are places, there are places where, you know, my, my parents live in Round Rock, which is actually where I'm at right now. This is, so it's not technically Austin. This is a suburb of Austin. And there are parts of Round Rock where you have a huge amount of development that has occurred in the last, you know, five to 10 years. And, you have an incredibly terrible road network that does not allow any kind of parallel connectivity. So obviously then that means the few, you know, actually this is the entire metropolitan Austin has this problem. This is symptomatic of all of Austin. There's no parallel road capacity anywhere. So I think in that situation, there are a small number of places, you know, like in and around uh, your your core areas that actually have some viability where it might make sense to say that instead of, you know, we have some massive traffic problem, instead of doing this hugely expensive widening that is being talked about, we want to start looking for opportunities to make a few more connections here and there, some small streets that would allow a little bit of local circulation to avoid the big fat strode. Um, And that's maybe a little bit different, but those situations are relatively few and far between. Most places or the largest number of municipalities in the country are not experiencing, you know, continuing significant growth pressure and already have way more, you know, way more uh, roads than they need. And also I specifically said no new roads. So I didn't actually say no new streets. That's right. semantic. Yeah, yeah. I would say that there are a few places where, you know, making a little bit, doing some small openings to make a little bit more connectivity might really increase the viability of a productive uh, development pattern. But, you know, those are going to be a few, and those are going to be a very small number of sort of exceptions. Um, and starting off with the proposition of, okay, and I think it's really more about like changing your defaults, you know, right. our default assumption is now no new roads. And if there's going to be a new road for some reason, like it's going to have an extremely difficult case to be made for why we should have any more than we already have. It's already too much. We already can't afford to maintain it. Most of it's already very underproductive. So why in the world would we want to add any new? And, you know, right now it's like the opposite. I mean, it's like the default assumption is as many new roads as we can get. Anything that gets us a new road is automatically, right. you know, approved. Right. Oh. So it's like changing the defaults. Hey, dude, hang on one yeah. second. Um, your train's gonna, we're about to get trained here. Yeah. For those of you <laughs> podcast listeners that don't know, uh, our office here in Minnesota, in Brainerd, Minnesota, is literally, my window is probably 30 feet from the train track. It's really Blues Brother-esque. So hang on, here it comes. All right. That's the beginning of the train. And uh, it's. I think it's, we're probably okay from here on if you don't mind the little low rumble. But uh, that is... Yeah, the, we, I can... <laughs> you can hear it in the background? <laughs> 
Oh, I can definitely hear the uh, the wheels squeaking down the tracks. Yeah, it's. I just love it. I mean, I, I am kind of a night person too, so I'll sometimes come in here at night and literally at like one, two in the morning, the train goes by, and it's really cool. I I just love being here. So, you know, to me, I, it, it is interesting because the default setting is how do we. Uh, you know, how do we build more of this stuff? And when you say something like no new curb cuts, you know, like the, the default setting should be, we should never really have another curb cut because we got them all over the place and they just destroy the capacity of the road network. Oh, they're a huge problem. Uh, they're a huge problem. People look at you and I had this meeting with a local engineer a couple of weeks ago and I, I threw that one out. Like, you know, you really should be doing access management and having no new curb cuts. And he's like, well, we, we can't do that. Um, you know, so at the beginning of the day, what it seems like we're faced with, you know, when we start this whole thing is a lot of core assumptions of the suburban experiment development pattern that for many people in the system are non-negotiable. Uh, you know, we, right. we have to have more curb cuts. More curb cuts are always good. More roads are always good. Uh, you know, well, if we have a problem, we need more regulation. It's not it's never less. It's always more. The new subdivisions and new development is a similar problem that yes. a lot of people would say, well, anybody who owns land has the right to develop that land even – well, and specifically, this is the part of it that they that – they, it, it, to me, is an internal inconsistency. But the argument goes any, any farmer who owns land that could possibly be developed has a right to develop that land and cash out of his farm because his land is his – you know, that's his retirement. Like that guy, his land is his worth. Right. It's his wealth. And he needs to, he has to be allowed to capitalize on his asset that he owns. Otherwise there are no property rights and the whole thing is a joke. Okay. Right. Okay. All right. I, I might be totally okay with that premise. What I'm not okay with. That, that, oh, there goes the end of the train. All right. <laughs> Keep going. Now the train is done. So what I'm not okay with is what's implied by that argument. Because what's implied by that argument is that you have a right to a specific pattern of cashing out on your land. Right. Which is build some really cheap stuff and then turn over the maintenance of all the infrastructure to the city. Right. And the city has to accept this new infrastructure for public maintenance because if they don't, that's the same thing as saying you can't develop your land. Right. Well, it's not the same thing as saying you can't develop your land. It's this, it is saying you can't develop your land and then offload all the cost, all the maintenance costs to the city. Uh, the effect would be that most of the development that, you know, represents the normative, you know, uh, creeping outward of our cities today becomes not economically viable, right? right? But right. that's because it isn't economically viable in the first place, and nobody has a right to cash out by essentially robbing the future taxpayers of the municipality, which is what's going on when you build underproductive development that won't pay for itself, and there's an entitlement that says – you're allowed to do that because at a profit to the individual or the developer or the group of individuals, whatever, you are, you know, you have a right to uh, create future maintenance obligations for the city. What, that, that makes no sense. That makes no sense. You know, I, I've always had this. I've always struggled with this in terms of the state highway department because I, I've worked on a number of highway projects uh, both for the DOT and then at the local level where literally the DOT will be coming through and by the, you know, the power of their spending will be making individual landowners filthy rich. Uh, yeah. you know, they will come through. We did a, they did a bypass here, a Brainerd uh, about 15, 20 years ago. And when they came through, there were a number of property owners who had literally been kind of land barons for a long time, but had had properties that were going tax forfeit and they were paying very nominal property taxes on them. And they were just kind of hanging on to them, uh, seeing, speculating if this highway would come through. And then the highway finally did come through and they were able to sell to Home Depot, to Walmart, to all the big box retailers that went through there and literally make millions of dollars overnight off of this public investment. We're all completely fine with that. 
And, and we kind of culturally have said, you know, well, they were in the right place at the right time and they had the right amount of land. And, uh, so, well, no, it's you know, not even just that, it's not even just that we're fine with it. It's that people look at that as being as positive right, economic right. development yeah, to the exactly. community. No, no. They look at it as a community benefit. Hey, people in our town got rich because of the highway. Therefore right. our town's economy got stronger. Yeah. And that's usually not the case. It's usually a small number of people, you know, benefit immensely. And then they take all that money and they go buy a, a second home in Hawaii. Right. So Hawaii's economy benefits a lot from that. <laughs> but you know, yeah. your local economy, the impact is much more debatable. Well, let me give you the converse because I, I've seen this just as many times and it's, it's absolutely mind blowing to me. Uh, we had one project I was working on where the DOT was bypassing the small town and they literally went in and made a deal to purchase to pay, to basically pay off the gas station in town, the national chain gas station in town, the franchise, because they were t- diverting like 30,000 cars a day away from that gas station. And that was wow. deemed to be a economic taking as if that gas station had a right to a certain volume of traffic flow provided by the DOT. Now, I, to me, The problem is not one of these sides or the other. It's the incoherence between the two. So in other words, if we are going to be making property owners rich by our, by our investments or by the infrastructure that we're willing to take over in this system. And once we do that, uh, you know, they get to keep all the gain. Why are we then also responsible when there's a change in that system for their loss? If we're yeah, going to be responsible for their loss, in other words, if once you've got the highway, then you've always have a right to that highway, then why aren't we assessing people the value that we add to their property when the t- general taxpayer makes them wealthy? I, the, right. That dichotomy has never made sense to me because it's like the taxpayer takes it in the, the shorts on the way down and on the way up, they get none of the benefit. So, you know, I don't get it, but that is the, you know, that is the default setting we have today. That that's the way the system works. Yeah. Well, I think it's telling who is it in town that got paid off Yeah, the national chain gas station. If you had a mom and pop store on main street that tried to sue the DOT and say, well, we're going to go out of business because you built this highway, they'd get no, they would get no such similar treatment. That would not be considered a taking, Right. you know, yeah, your business is still there. You're downtown, your customers are local customers. I mean, like, well, we can't, and, and it would be, well, we can't pay everybody for hypothetical losses or damages. Right. Right. But we have to pay shell because they're the people who make the whole system work. Right. (laughs) You know, Well, and we have so, some, you know, we have basically a prearranged agreement because we've right. litigated this before that when there's a gas station, we'll pay them X amount per thousand cars a day or something like that. You know, it's, it, it's a, it's an upside down economic transaction. And it shows you that the, 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 the process of growth and development that we have uh, is not literally about building the public wealth. It is about the transactions and the way that, uh, you know, individuals and businesses and really the government, uh, both local and state and federal benefit more from the transaction than from the final condition. Yeah. Yeah. And then nobody wants to, you know, everybody sort of wants to be the last person to flip and not be the yeah. person who's uh, after the final flip. Yeah. And, and so <laughs> that is the whole game is can you be the can you be the, the last person to sell? Yeah. You know, before nobody gets to sell anymore. Exactly. So. You're buying on the assumption that there's a greater fool. down the road. And this is, you know, so when we say stop, uh, what we're really talking about is not engaging in a system uh, where you're relying on the greater fool, Uh, not engaging in a system where you're uh, essentially relying on being, you know, the, not being the last person bailed out or the last person who's going to get theirs. And to me, I, I feel like as we go on, that is a fairly convincing argument for the general public. It's the staff and even the elected officials to a degree that struggle with the idea that it's actually better to do nothing than to do things that will ultimately be harmful. 
Although I would argue that, I mean, you're totally right, yeah. but I think that there is a difference, a distinct difference actually in the case of where we are today between stopping and doing nothing. Yeah. Because doing nothing for most, well, doing nothing for every city in this country means to continue to allow all this stuff to go on. Right. To Very stop true. actually means you have to, with great effort and probably an enormous amount of political fight, apply the brakes. Right. Right. Um, yeah, that's a great, that's an important I'll, distinction. Yeah, I'll, I'll pick on I'll pick on uh, Hutto for a minute. Um, we have a good friend, Erica Ragsdale, who works in the city planning department in Hutto, and they've done some really good planning work. Um, and um, I, I don't know all the ins and outs of Hutto uh, because I haven't paid close attention to their daily, you know, permitting and, and action and so on. But I drive through Hutto from time to time. I have been for years. It's uh, not, you know, not terribly. It's also another North Austin suburb, and it's sort of on my way. Uh, to places east. So sure. um, I go through Hutto a couple times a year and have for the last, you know, 15, uh, 10, 10, 15 years. I don't know. So, um, you know, so I've watched it change. I watched it go from a one stoplight town of, you know, a thousand people to now a 20,000 person bedroom community in, you know, one generation, less than a generation. So, um, so Erica works for the planning department and, and uh, we were talking, this was actually back at CNU, we were talking about, you know, what's going on there. And she said, basically, you know, I feel like Hutto has done all this. I feel like Hutto has done it. Like we've, we've implemented all the policies. We've implemented all the, you know, we've, we've got, you know, like we're not, we're not doing sprawl anymore. Right. And I said to her, <laughs> Erica, you know that I, you know, I think you're a wonderful person and, you, and you're good at your job. But seriously, <laughs> uh, if Hutto has, has, if Hutto is not doing sprawl anymore, then why did like six new big box stores go up in the last year? Right. Why are there new subdivisions still under construction all over town? You know, why is, you know, 80, 90% of the city living on a cul-de-sac? Right. So, you know, and she's like, well, oh, <laughs> I mean, she kind of she kind of thought about it for a second and goes, OK, yeah, all right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and that's a place where they really have made pretty sweeping changes to their uh, to their system. But her her answer to that question after she thought about it for a minute was, well, you know, pretty much all of that stuff was permitted years ago. Right. Uh, like a lot of that stuff was permitted in the mid 2000s before we started doing any of these uh, planning changes or they submitted applications before we changed any of the rules. And by law, we have to allow them to proceed under what was legal at the time that they requested their permit. So, you know, we can't stop them. We're not legally allowed to stop them. Okay. Well, she's, I think she's spot on. She's totally right. Right. So just to even stop in a city that's trying, you know, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. I, I do think, and to cut, um, you know, to cut people some slack, the the cities that really want to do this, that really want to stop, I, I do think that it is probably more prudent to think of a wind down and then a ramping up of an alternative. And, you know, part of the rational responses we're going to get into is how do you then establish that alternative and what does that start to look like? But Oh, and I'm so glad you just mentioned alternatives. Yeah, so yeah, when you finish your thought, we should dive back into alternatives. Well, I, I do think that, you know, it, it is uh, politically – uh, a very, very difficult thing to, uh, to just, you know, put the brakes on. And sometimes you legally can't do it because like you described, you, right. you permitted things years ago, but well, and that's due, due process of law. I mean, I right. think we're at strong towns, we're talking about, you know, financial responsibility and we're talking about fairness going both ways, but we're not advocating that people just violate due process. That's, right. you know, Due process violations are part of the problem. That happens all the time right now in the wrong direction. And we don't need to, you know, just perpetuate that the other direction. Right. But, in you know, here in Minnesota, you have the every city has the authority to enact a moratorium. Uh, to take a pause essentially and, and really do stop anything that would be new that would be coming through and then take some time and start to redraft a different approach. Uh, you right. know, and, and at the very least, you can in a in a very you know reasonable period of time go through and say these are the things we will not be approving i mean we will not be approving uh you know new subdivisions of these types we will not be approving things where a, a cost benefit analysis doesn't score out in a way that's positive for us as a community so there's a lot of things that can be done 
uh, without having to go through and, you know, adopt a whole new set of codes and a whole new set of regulations and what have you, uh, that, right. that would get you closer to stop than what we're at today. And, uh, right. you know, and of course, it, the other part of it is the big municipal projects, because pretty much every city has got one big, massive old economy project that's going forward. And it's got a local champion and it's got probably staff time and support that's been put into it. And so, you know, you've got to pull the plug on those too. And that's politically sometimes a difficult thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. A difficult or impossible. I mean, some of them, it's, it is no longer in the local municipality's control to even, you know, make it stop. So it, it, it trickles up all levels. Right. But, but you mentioned, you mentioned the, so what should people do instead? Right. And I feel like we're going to, I have a feeling, I don't know exactly what you have uh, cooked up for the next couple uh, response posts, but um, so I don't know what order these different things will come out in, but um, I think we're going to get into a lot of, you know, uh, how to recognize snake oil. And I, I think that I, I, I thought of an analogy the other day when I was driving down the street, I, I, I stopped at, a, uh, I, I went to the, so I'm in, I'm living in Raleigh now. I went to, uh, Wrightsville beach, uh, which is near the town of Wilmington, which by the way, if you want to see an investment ready place, Wilmington was really neat. Um, yeah. I, uh, I felt like that was a place that it's, it's certainly not in dire straits. Um, so it's not, in, it's not, uh, maybe the same kind of investment ready place that some other people have talked about where they're kind of on the ropes, but have great potential. This place is, I'd say more, more just average economically, but, uh, fabulous historic downtown, um, great location with a, you know, a port and everything. I mean, anyway, really neat town was very happy to get to see that, but on the way to the beach, um, I stopped in a small town and uh, pulled over at a McDonald's. Okay. Now this was, I was driving late in the evening and I had been hoping that I would make it all the way to uh, Wilmington before I needed to like stop and and we were going to have dinner there. But I was just, I was starving. I couldn't, I couldn't make the whole drive. (laughs) I'm like, my stomach's rumbling. I'm like getting a little bit queasy. I'm like, okay, I need, and when I'm out in the middle of the woods, right? So there's really not, there's nothing around. There's no towns. It's like, you know, 20 miles between each town. So there's nothing. So I'm, I'm, uh, driving down and I'm like, okay, I see a thing, McDonald's, this exit. I'm like, all right, I need to go in and get a a regular hamburger and a water, or I'm not going to make it to Wilmington. Like I've just got to stop. So, all right. So I pull over and the McDonald's that's at the corner of the freeway was probably the nicest McDonald's I've ever seen. Sure. It was like, it was like it being in an Apple store. It was so fancy. The menu was all animated video boards um, with these beautiful, you know, depictions of all their different food. And they had a whole center display about their salads and wraps. Yeah. And I looked at that and I thought to myself sort of briefly, maybe I should just do a salad instead of a you know, <laughs> single hamburger here. I don't sure. know. I sort of thought about it for a minute and I, I ended up deciding not to. I stuck with the, because it's, you know, it's $1 for the uh, regular hamburger and it was like $5 for the salad. And I was right. still planning on having dinner later. Then. So, I, so I didn't, I didn't go for it, but I, I don't go to McDonald's very often. Yeah. In fact, I, pr- I pretty much never go to McDonald's. So th- this is like the one situation in which I go to McDonald's and I was just shocked at how different it was. And I kind of thought to myself, you know, they are trying, McDonald's is, is trying to be Starbucks, you know, only with more food, right? Right. But they're also, because they're trying to make it a, they're trying to turn McDonald's into a place where you would hang out, which the idea of hanging out at McDonald's, I think for anybody who's alive, you know, an adult today Ugh. is like just kind of preposterous, yeah, but just bizarre, you know, but that's what they're, that's clearly what they're trying to do. I mean, it was like the place was like, it had great comfortable chairs right. and it was, there was like no plastic in the whole building. Okay. Right. Yep. You know, except for the silverware that they serve. <laughs> yeah. But um, but I was thinking about that as I got back on the road to drive down to the beach. I was thinking about the McDonald's salad. Yeah. And I thought, you know, they're they're emphasizing these healthier options because McDonald's knows. Okay, right now everyone in America is getting more health conscious day by day. People are dealing 
starting to deal more and more with the reality of being obese. Like it's affecting more and more people, you know, even people who are far from obese are still being told by their doctor, you know, you should lose 10 pounds or, you know, you're, you're carrying more weight than you really should. And you've got some health side effects that, you know, would, would be improved if you would lose some weight. So everyone's trying to get a little healthier. And I think there are a lot of people, a lot of people in this country who would look at a McDonald's salad and say, there we go. That's the answer. (laughs) Right, right. Uh, If McDonald's, if I can get a salad at McDonald's, I can be healthy. Yeah, yeah. And And, with a Diet Coke, right. Disregard the fact that the salad is $7 when the burger is one or $5 when the burger is one, you know, like I, Hey, now that McDonald's offers salads, I think I'm going to be able to be like McDonald's is healthy now. Right. right? That's the, that's the thing. McDonald's is healthy now. Okay. I'm sorry. I don't think, I, I think there are some people who would fall for that, but I think the vast majority of people, uh, are not going to ever associate McDonald's with being a healthy place to eat, you know? Right. It just, I think we know, like we, we get it. Like, okay, yes, a salad at McDonald's might be nutritionally superior to a Big Mac at McDonald's. Sure. But it's probably not superior to much else. Like that's not a very difficult, you know, it's not a very difficult battle to win. Right. You know, being better, better for you than a Big Mac and supersized fries is not a great accomplishment, right? But I feel like... When we talk about complete streets and we talk about LID, you know, low, supposedly low impact development, those are McDonald's salads. (laughs) They are a tiny improvement. (laughs) They're a tiny improvement on the standard suburban model. And what they really say is, look, we're not going to quit eating fast food. Like we're not. Like I'm going to keep eating fast food. I'm not willing to stop eating fast food. So the solution is the McDonald's salad, right? That's, that's how I can be healthy. Only what if the McDonald's salad is, you know, what if what's in the dressing? I haven't looked at the nutrition facts, so I'm picking up McDonald's a little bit here more than maybe they deserve, possibly more than they deserve. So I'll just acknowledge fully that that I I am making this uh, an analogy. Right, but you're not not getting literal critique of the McDonald's salad. You're not getting anything at McDonald's that's coming from the local farm. I mean, everything is processed, moved around the the world, uh, preserved. Yeah, right, and that's the that's the whole deal with it. Yeah. So when you get that, when you, but the, here's the other side of it though. Like, I think this is like, this is the ultimate thing. Once you're already in the drive through lane at McDonald's, as much as you may intend to get the salad, how often are you going to get the Big Mac instead? <laughs> or get the, I mean, or get the salad me, and a Big Mac. <laughs> yeah. Or get the salad and a Big Mac. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like, okay, I'll get, I'm going to go to McDonald's cause it's convenient and whatever. And I, but I'm going to get the salad. So it's going to be okay. I'm going to feel better about it, right. but okay. Just this once I'm going to also get the fries. Right. Cause they're so tasty. I mean, oh my gosh, McDonald's fries are so good. Everyone knows how good McDonald's fries are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like if out of your if, – if you're someone who routinely goes to McDonald's, if out of every you know five trips to McDonald's, twice you get a salad and twice you get a salad plus some sort of you know cheat that you shouldn't probably have done and then one time you just bail on the salad and get what you actually want, which is the big old juicy burger, you know. Right. Have you really made a change? And I would say the answer is no. Like right. it's not the salad or the hamburger – that is the problem. It's the entire culture of your meal being based on, you know, cheapness and drive-through availability, <laughs> you know, right. and uh, tastiness. A, a standardized commodity. On, right. 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 And not on nutritional value. Right. Yeah. Like, like you could make at home a lean hamburger that might actually, you know, assuming you don't put too much uh, fatty meat on it, um, you could probably make a pretty healthy burger for yourself. But that's not what McDonald's sells. Dude, right. the, and the, you know the guy we the, the guy we bought our farm from as a kid growing up lived to be like ninety eight, and you, I mean, 
I would, we, we went to eat with him once. I remember when we were in, he was in the, the retirement home. Uh, after we bought the farm, they moved to this home, him and his wife. And he was there and we had a hamburger and he'd take his hamburger, the top uh, bun off and then pour sugar on his hamburger. Like, Whoa. yeah, I'm not joking you. This guy was, you know, he died. I think when he was 98, he was thin. He was, you know, and it's not like, you know, he had a son and his son had the same problems as, you know, the rest of us. He was overweight. He, uh, you know, so it wasn't genetic. It was just that this guy, you know, got up and was active every day all the time, just as part of his normal routine. I mean, he, he worked on a farm. Not all of us are going to be, you know, as active as a average farmer in, you know, 1930 would have been, but, uh, you know, it, it, I am I'm, I'm completely convinced that the the eating of uh, you know natural foods in a sense, not processed stuff, combined with just a general exercise, uh, you know you the, the the dietary needs of people are completely different than what we get today. The idea of being medicated for high cholesterol and then getting the the uh, salad at McDonald's. I think this is an right. awesome analogy because it, it is really the difference between – and let me just put it like this. And I, I don't know if this is the exact right way to put it, but it's the difference between a natural system, which our body and our being are, are designed around, which really is the traditional development pattern – and you know traditional ways of, of eating and exercise versus an artificial construct uh, which is the suburban experiment the McDonald's drive-through and even going down to the McDonald's salad which is a solution to a problem that never existed 60 years ago right exactly exactly yeah and I think that's I think if people will talk about well it's, a, it's you know that guy who poured sugar on his burger but lived to be 98 okay he had a completely different way of life from yeah you know of someone who uh, is your typical American you know office worker or worker who is not a physical laborer right right it's a completely different way of life and sometimes people I, I pick on uh, some of our friends in this world will, will talk about we need to change people's lifestyle I feel like okay no that's that's crap lifestyle is like well I drive a Prius now so my 80 mile commute is fine right. okay lifestyle is I changed from an SUV to a Prius so I really changed my lifestyle right but right. that's like because it's a it's a trend right yeah you know lifestyle is I used to wear <laughs> you know I don't know I used to have a bowl cut and now I do the uh, right. you know I have a just a just a short haircut across the top right yeah like it's it's different lifestyle right or i used to be into this kind of music now i'm into this kind of music so it's a different lifestyle I tell you, those things are like l let me throw an elbow at our new urbanist friends i used to build uh auto-centric uh you know single family home subdivisions and now i build auto-centric new urbanism subdivisions so somehow <laughs> i'm you know i i it's a it's a totally different lifestyle well not exactly well, yeah, it's in, there are some internal differences, but the way in which you relate to the world has not changed. Right. And I feel like, so I don't, I don't usually say lifestyle. I say way of life, right? In the sense that I might choose to exercise a lot more and that could be a lifestyle change for me. Yeah. Okay. I might choose to, to routinely exercise every day. And that would represent adding that element to my day would represent a different lifestyle, right? But moving out to a farm and working a farm for a living would represent not a change in lifestyle. It would represent a completely different way of life. Right. And it's, and I think anybody can kind of understand, like if you want to say like, you need to live a more active life. Okay. The, I'm going to, okay. I add exercise to my day. That is a lifestyle change. I completely leave my whole environment and change, you know, my entire way of living to be centered around vocational labor instead of, uh, you know, a vocation where I'm not doing physical labor. That's a completely different way of life. Like it, it ripples through and changes. And I think you can sort of see like, it's it's like all the secondary side effects, right? Like right. to quit, to quit living the way I'm living now and become a farmer, I'm living in a different place. I probably 
have a different set of friends. I have an entirely different, you know, income, maybe different bank accounts, maybe different, you know, if I have, uh, if I'm on a farm, I probably don't have a little small car anymore. Like I, I drive a little Mazda. Well, if I live on a farm and work on a farm for a living, I probably need a truck, Right. you know? Right. And so it's like everything. It's it's a change that is rippling through and causing everything else to also change. Whereas a lifestyle change is like in isolation, right? Like I added exercise to my day, but everything else is the same. Sure. And I feel like right now everybody is looking for lifestyle changes. And so when we say things like, you know, stop doing the things that are hurting you, yeah. they're like, okay, so, all right, that sounds fine. So what what is it that's hurting me exactly, you know? <laughs> we're talking not about lifestyle level changes. We're talking about way of life yes. changes. And that's harder to imagine until you get, you know, until you start going with people case by case and saying, look, you know, this, you know, fast food is just not, you know, yeah. it's just not part of a healthy lifestyle. It's just not, you know, or, or excuse me, not part of a healthy way of life. It's just not. Right. Well, you know, similarly, the, uh, you know, the, the conventional suburban development pattern is just not part of a healthy way of life for a city. Nassim, and, Nassim Taleb in the, his last book in anti-fragile had a whole section mm-hmm. about via negativa, which I, I would just, uh, Oh, it was one of my favorite parts of the book where he, he talked about the idea of addition by subtraction, you know, the right. idea of, well, if you're trying to get healthy instead of, you know, getting the salad from the, the drive through instead of the hamburger, why don't you just take away the preservatives and the hamburger and go with local meat? You know, why, why, why don't you? And to me, I, I, I felt like that whole conversation was really premised on the notion that we used to know how to build cities that were adapted to humanity. You know, we used to know how to build places that essentially were optimized for people. And we've switched that around completely. And so I, I think you're right. I, I think the idea of taking a look and saying, okay, what is it? What is it that we used to do that worked really well? I mean, how are these cities really, uh, built and oriented and adapted for, for humanity, for people who live there? And how do we start to take away the things that get in the way of that, the things that, uh, you know, um, hinder that approach? And when you do that, it really is. And, and I, I think I agree with you that, you know, there should have been more outrage at my first post. It's a pretty radical set of things that you would be actually removing and taking away from the standard operating procedure of a city. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. But it's, I think what our challenge will be and what we will start to dig into a lot more as we keep working on these rational responses is going to be, I think a lot of people, it's too abstract when it's that big because it is so big and because it is a totally different way of life. I mean, for example, I'm trying to sort of give the, I was a minute ago trying to give the example of what would my life be like as a farmer. Yeah, but honestly, I don't really know. I, I kind of know some of the things about what it would be like. I don't really have any idea what it's like to be a farmer. So I can kind of try to imagine it in my head. But if someone who was, you know, an actual farmer sat down and told me, well, you're going to need to do this, you're going to need to do this, you're going to need to do this. Like I do these things, I do these things. I think there would be many, many of those, you know, uh, aspects of their life that I would be very surprised by. Sure. You know, I just wouldn't know, right? Why? How could I know? I think that's the way people are. I think we are, we live in this conventional pattern, and if unless you have spent a bunch of time studying it, or unless you have lived for some time in a different pattern, you know, you lived in Europe or you lived in an old village in the East Coast or something like that, you know, unless you've lived in a different context, a place that worked differently. You just, how are you supposed to know what the alternative is like? And I think we all, I think at Strong Towns, you know, we understand that. Uh, People don't necessarily have a frame of reference. So, you know, we're going to have to go through this series. You said you had 52 of them. Yeah, I I did. I I, I sat and wrote down 52 (laughs) rational responses when you and I decided to do this series. So, (laughs) yeah. So I think as we go through these things, we're going to start to, I think, be able to really connect more uh, with with the sort of public at large as we start to get very specific. You know, why no new curb cuts? Right. Explain that one to me. I don't get it. Well, why? And here's That's here's the why kind of stuff where I think uh, we'll start to make some bigger progress. Here's why I try to cut some people some slack too. And let's um, 
you know, let's end with the, the farm analogy again, because if you look right now today in, uh, you know, the, the category of people living alive today, I would be considered incredibly knowledgeable about living on a farm. And, you know, let's say that, you know, tomorrow uh, we were forced to, for whatever reason, to go back to local farming. Uh, in my community here, I would be a rarity. I would be an asset. I, I would be considered uh, a sage with this, you know, very, very deep knowledge about how to live on a farm because I grew up on a farm. It's funny because I consider myself to be an absolute idiot <laughs> about farming, you know, sure. in comparison to my, my parents or my grandparents. And in comparison to my, you know, my great, great grandparents, my parents would feel like idiots. I mean, I remember growing up where my dad would, would call the, the guy we bought the farm from old Billy Van Zant, call him up and say, you know, Billy, what did you used to do here? What'd you used to do there? Cause he had, he had no clue. He had, you know, no idea. Uh, you think about the knowledge that we've lost, uh, and how far we are from what I think would be a, a natural viable condition. Uh, it's easy for me to cut people some slack, uh, not necessarily theoretically when we're talking about it, but in actual application, because right, yeah. we're, we're a long ways gone from just the, the base knowledge set and understanding that our ancestors, and I say ancestors in the, the biggest sense of the word, you know, humanity for thousands of years, just wisdom. They just understood about places. So, we got a lot of work to do. Um, we're going to be continuing on with this uh, Rational Responses series on the blog. Every Thursday, we'll be dishing out one or two, and uh, we'll keep that going for as long as we come up with them, which I'm, I'm guessing is going to be measured in years, not uh, weeks and months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think there will be a lot and, and various follow-ups and so on. So this should be really fun. I, I think uh, I'm excited about it. I hope all of our Strong Towns crowd is excited about it as well. Hey, thanks so much, Andrew. And, uh, you know, be safe when you fly. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll do my best. Uh, I, I, think, I think if I concentrate really hard next time, I can maybe make the plane not hit any birds. Wait, no, I, I tell you, probably I, won't work. <laughs> I, I can guarantee that the next time I get on the plane, I will be paying closer attention to the, uh, the emergency <laughs> briefing that we get. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Yep. Dude. Well, you take care. All right. Thanks, Chuck. Take thanks. Care. And thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. 